right, we are back. The Flames are back on the ice. The start of the 2023-2024 NHL season is right around the corner. This Thursday morning, the first of three groups hit the ice at the Scotiabank Saddledome. We've got news, lines, pairings, lots of audio coming your way from the Saddledome as day one of the on-ice sessions officially began at this year's training camp at the Scotiabank Saddledome. Excited to get to all of that on this Thursday. It is Sportsnet today. Logan Gordon alongside my outstanding producers, Cam and Taylor. We're here from the Doug Lacey's Basement Systems downtown studios here in Calgary, Alberta. For Doug Lacey's Basement Systems, Crack Foundation, Boeing Foundation Walls. They have a simple permanent solution to stabilize your foundation. Contact Basement Systems. They're all things basement-y. Visit dlbasementsystems.com. The fan feedback line is open to you all show long. Shoot us a text at 960-960. Lots of Flames content coming your way this afternoon. We will hear from, just to name a few, Jacob Markstrom, Mackenzie Wieger, Jonathan Huberto, Elias Lindholm, head coach Ryan Huska, on his first day running an NHL training camp as the team's head coach. Lots to get to. We will analyze some of the lines and D pairings that we saw. We also have some other Flames-related news to get you to today as well. Also on a Thursday, we'll check with our pal Adnan Verk from MLB Network, NHL Network, and the Cinephile Podcast. Stamps report with Patty Dumas still to come. And we'll check in on Taylor's predictions Last night for Kevin Biggio and the Toronto Blue Jays, who picked up a win over the New York Yankees. So stay tuned for all of that. But we do start with the Calgary Flames back on ice. It was great to be at the Scotiabank Saddledome this morning. Practices continue. Three groups at the Scotiabank Saddledome. It all got going at 9 a.m. It was a little bit earlier for the two Flames goaltenders. Jacob Markstrom, the first skater on the ice, working with goaltending coach Jason LaBarbera. He'd soon be followed by last year's backup, Dan Vladar. They were out there a good 20-plus minutes before anybody else hit the ice from the first group. And then Nikita Zadorov led the skaters uh, for that group out for what was a really intense, high-energy, high-speed first on-ice session for the Calgary Flames today. And I think that's going to be the mantra that you're going to hear a lot from, whether it was Ryan Huska, Kale McLean, Dan Lambert, Mark Savard, you heard the Flames coaches. They were urging speed. They were urging their players to move with the puck as soon as possible. It's day one. It's not the, the be-all, end-all of, of everything, but it's a good indication of what the standard is being set by these coaches. And it's a new coaching staff here in Calgary. It's a lot of reason that we've talked about so much change and how this team is going to operate on a day-to-day basis because the coaches are different. And I can tell you being there on on day one, it was incredibly noticeable the pace and the intensity that this coaching staff is going to demand from their players, whether it was rush drills, it was battling in your own zone, zone exits, zone entries, all of it was being done with speed in mind. And clearly that's going to be a, a mantra for this Flames team going forward is to use that to their advantage, that included not only just the forward group, but the D group was encouraged to do the same thing. There were a lot of 
mixed drills where I'll say you would probably just assume, you know, entry into the offensive zone. Okay, you're going to see a lot of forwards doing that. The D was encouraged and involved in every drill like that. The defensemen are going to play a big role in how Calgary transitions the puck this year. And as we'll hear from Mackenzie Weger and, and Rasmus Anderson a little bit later on, you know, in the right circumstances, they're going to be asked to be a part of that offense. They're going to be asked to be that fourth guy in transition to help create in the offensive zone. That was very apparent on day one of training camp. Really exciting. It's a great feeling to be back at the Scotiabank Saddle Dome and excited as day one of training camp is officially underway and on the ice at the Scotiabank Saddle Dome. We did have some news to share today that's not so great from a Calgary Flames perspective. Don't want to make this too big of an issue before we know more about it, but it was disappointing at the very least to start off the day just a few moments into the first on-ice session. Uh, press release was sent out by the Calgary Flames saying that following yesterday's medical and fitness testing, it was determined that Oliver Shillington is unable to participate in the opening of training camp today. As this is a private personal matter, no further information will be provided. He was scheduled to skate with the second group this morning, was not out there, obviously, and it's caught a lot of people off guard. It's caught a lot of people, um, you know, questioning now what exactly the future is for Oliver Shillington. Uh, I said this when it initially happened, and I'll stick by it here. Oliver's mental health and his well-being as a person should and I hope will always come ahead of hockey. I don't again, we don't know what this is. They're not going to be providing details on it. Uh but I think for anybody to you know get here today is one of the most exciting storylines was to see Oliver Shillington back in Calgary Flames gear and back out on the ice with his teammates to have that notice come down just a few minutes into the first on ice session was disappointing for a lot of people, myself included. I hope the guy's okay. I, I hope it's a short term thing. I, I think this training camp is incredibly important for him. I if hockey is going to be in his future going forward, this is an important training camp for him. And, you know, getting back to NHL speed, he you can talk as much as we want about, his training in the offseason and being prepared for another hockey season, nothing replicates this. There is no doing this at home. You can't replicate the reps with Ryan Huska or Dan Lambert. You can't replicate the battle level that you go through. And to me, those were just such crucial things for Oliver when we talked about coming back from a year away from the game and now – we're kind of left with this question mark again. And again, I don't want to make this too big of a deal too soon. Hopefully Oliver is ready to go tomorrow, Friday, whenever, uh, you know, on ice sessions continue this week, leading into the first preseason game on, on Sunday night. Hopefully it's just a, an extra day or two that he needs to get settled. But I think you have to, knowing that he missed the entire year last year, I think you have to at least in the back of your mind, be prepared that maybe it is something a little bit more substantial that's keeping him away right now. So again, first and foremost, I hope Oliver's doing okay. 
I, I hope that he's in a good space mentally and physically that he can get out to training camp soon. But if not, I hope he gets all the time. You know, the Flames organization will give him all the time, all the space, all the resources that they need that he needs uh, to get better and to get back on track. So that leaves a, a very interesting question for us. And it was one that we were talking about this week heading into training camp was, well, how's everything going to line up? The groups were very, I think, deliberately set out by Ryan Huska. The first two groups were going to see some NHL combinations, lines, pairings, that sort of thing. Third group was, you know, a younger group of guys, some invitees from the Calgary Hitmen mixed in there. And a, a group that I think was more probably focused on their upcoming season, whether in junior hockey or with the Calgary Wranglers and the AHL level. So the first on-ice session played out pretty much how we thought it would. You know hockey's back when our pal Pat Steinberg's back tweeting out lines and pairings. And exactly what we thought was going to happen happened. Yegor Sharangovich found himself on the right wing with Elias Lindholm and... And Jonathan Huberto. No big surprise there. The mix of players afterwards, you can read into a bit. Pelche, Rooney, Dewar. Okay, I could possibly see that being a, a fourth-line combination maybe for the Calgary Flames this year. You get down a little further, you're talking Hanzek, Zeri, Coronado, Hunt with Schwinton, Pedersen. You know, so you get a little bit further down, you get into some guys that have been more regulars with the Calgary Wranglers that are looking to take that next step up. It's certainly not a one to four lines that you'll see in an NHL game this year. We get to the D pairings and that's where things get interesting. Noah Hannafin, whose future has been in question here in Calgary throughout, throughout the off season, found himself back on his uh, regular pairing that we've known him for, for most of his time in Calgary with Rasmus Anderson and the other two full-time NHLers from last season, Nikita Zadorov and Mackenzie Weger were on a pairing. That inevitably had led me to believe earlier this week, I thought it was a great landing spot. I thought it was a soft landing spot, and it was, in my mind, made the most sense for him to start training camp on day one in the second group. But we'd see Oliver Shillington and Chris Tanev there. That didn't happen, obviously, with the news about Oliver not being able to participate today. I had to see a different look. It was Jordan Osterley the NHL journeyman defenseman who got the slot alongside Chris Tanev in the second group. Brady Lyle and Dennis Gilbert were a pairing. Etienne Moran and uh, Jan Kuznetsov were a pairing going back to their uh, time at the Young Stars Classic. And you also saw, again, a, a line that you thought you were going to see, Manjapani, Backlund, Coleman, Ruzichka, interestingly enough, on the wing with Kadri and Dubé. We'll get into some of those forward lines in a bit, but just going off of the news of the day, which is the Shillington one in my mind, uh, it was interesting to see who they were going to pair off the top with Chris Tanev because I thought, again, that was going to be a slot given to Oliver on day one of training camp to get back into the groove. He's not there. Goes to Jordan Osterley. I think that's an interesting decision. Will we see Dennis Gilbert mixed in there throughout training camp? I think that's probably a fair assumption. But as of right now, it sure looks like your top six, based on day one of training camp, you're going back to the pairing of, of Hannafin and Anderson, Zadorov, Uyghur, and then Tanev with, I would assume right now you're talking about guys 
in the mix of a Jordan Osterley and a Dennis Gilbert. That's probably not ideal if you're Craig Conroy and company right now, but it's where you're going to operate until in the time being, until we find out what exactly the timeline looks like for Oliver Shillington. Uh, so once again, in case you missed it, I know there's been a couple people on the text line uh, curious. The Flames did announce earlier today that uh, Oliver Shillington not able to participate in the opening of training camp today uh, after the physical yesterday. Um, after yesterday's medical and fitness testing determined Oliver unable to participate in the open of training camp today. It's a private personal matter. No further information will be provided. So as of right now, sure looks like your top six operates with those six guys that I mentioned, maybe a Dennis Gilbert, who we saw in a seventh defenseman role last year. We'll have something to say about that pairing with Chris Tanev, but certainly feels like you're talking about a hole in that flames defense core. If Oliver's not ready to go, that was the biggest story out of training camp so far to start the on-ice sessions. Uh, a couple of your texts at 960-960. Keep firing them in. You can always send us a text on Sportsnet today. Uh, our pal uh, Matt and Cochran texting in. He says, I hope Shilly not being able to participate in training camp. Just a temporary thing that can clear, get cleared up quick and not a more serious situation for the guy trying to make his comeback from a year off. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I Again, we don't know what exactly... The, the situation is we're not going to be given more details uh, on the matter, but uh, hopefully it's okay. And we'll see him back sooner than later. Uh, this one says with all the compassion and understanding that Oliver Shillington in uh, deserves, the question does remain. How long do the flames wait on this player? I, I mean, I think Oliver Shillington's a young asset for this team. I think you have to go back and it's a long time now. You have to go back to, you know, when he was on that pairing with Chris Tanev and remember what kind of, of asset he gave you with his skating, with his offensive ability. And I, I think that I, I think that any good organization, knowing what Oliver has gone through and knowing that it wasn't a – and look, I want to be clear about this. This isn't a player that was – you know, players get in, in, in a lot of different situations, right? Some of them outside their control. Some of them definitely in their control, right? DUI, whatever you, you want to go to, you get in plenty of trouble off the ice. This isn't, and it's never been a case of a guy who's been in trouble off of the ice. He's just gone through some really hard personal stuff. And I, I think it's it's in the organization's best interest to to show some compassion for that and to to understand and look, I get it. I understand the timeline can be frustrating for fans and it's never easy to wait and see and, and continue to wait on it. But I think the circumstances that have led to this sort of dictate handling it a little bit differently than maybe you, you normally would, if that makes sense. Uh, this text says, what a chance of seeing Poirier with Tanev. I, I don't know. Uh, Jeremy Poirier didn't participate in the Young Stars Classic last year, or last weekend, excuse me, last year, last weekend, uh, dealing with uh, some recovery time from an injury uh, and surgery they had in the offseason. Um, so I, I don't know what the possibility is. He's in a different group with Tanev right now. 
Uh, as we see when cutdowns happen, these groups do tend to change. So if Jeremy's healthy, if he's ready to go, is there a chance that we see that? Sure. I think that's something that, you know, Peter Labardi has had openly wondered about last year when we talked to him on the program on a daily basis was a guy with Jeremy's sort of offensive instinct, a year pro in the AHL. And I think just given the mantra that this Calgary Flames team has operated with under Craig Conroy and Ryan Husk about giving young guys ample opportunity, if he's ready to go, if he shows the right things in training camp, if he's healthy, then yeah, maybe you do get to see a young guy like a Jeremy Poirier um, given the opportunity to skate alongside a guy in the top six. Uh, Kevin Northhaven Reddit says the Flames added the word today to their release. Is that true? Yeah, the exact release, I'll read it for you one more time. I know it's a bit of just tuning in live. If you've missed it, I'll read it for you exactly like they say. Uh, The statement is as follows. Following yesterday's medical and fitness testing, it was determined that Oliver is unable to participate in the opening of training camp today. As this is a private personal matter, no further information will be provided. So again, could we see Oliver as soon as tomorrow? Sure hope so. But I would, again, just caution knowing, again, that the guy's missed a year. Does it feel likely that he's jumping into to online sessions tomorrow? I, I really don't know. Fingers crossed that's what it is, but uh, at this point, we just have more question marks uh, than answers. Let's hear from a couple members of the Calgary Flames from that first skate this morning, starting with Mackenzie Weger. He was the first Flame to meet the media in the locker room, energized. We've talked to him throughout the summer. He's been a name in the captaincy conversation here in Calgary and a guy that definitely feels the new energy around this group. Here's Mackenzie Weger following his first on-ice session of Flames Camp earlier on this Thursday. What's, uh, what's it feel like on day number one? Do you still get a few nerves when you come in, come in for day one, even though it's been a few years? Yeah, more excitement nerves here. Um, it was great. It's great to see everybody and just get right into things. Um, you know, we had a great practice today, high intensity. Just get your conditioning back, lots of smiles. Um, and we had a lot of fun out there. It was great. You've heard a lot about culture change this summer. Do you feel it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of guys are walking around here, um, you know, upbeat, um, you know, a lot of smiles, um, you know, clear-minded, fresh, whatever you want to, however you want to put it. I think everybody's just ready to go and, and wants to dig into this uh, season and, and get started. Where does that come from? Is that just the start of another new year? Is that, I mean, there's some familiarity around here for sure, but where does that levity come from? Uh, yeah, I think it just was a, it was a long off-season for a lot of guys. Um, you know, clear your mind, um, you know, get back into shape. And ultimately, I think that comes with, you know, a new organizational change. And, um, you know, that was needed for everybody. And you come in here with, um, you know, new systems, um, you know, new, new teammates, new line mates, whatever, shake it up a bit. But, um, you know, just changing the, the identity, changing the culture, and um, all for the better. And, and you can tell day one. How do you kind of block out any kind of distractions? I mean, this is a pretty good roster, top to bottom, where it sits today. But mm-hmm. we all know that there's some business side of this that will play itself out in time. How do you guys kind of tune that out? Uh, yeah, I think you just, you, you know, we just keep it in the room here. Um, everybody just kind of, you know, talks about, you know, what we need to do to get better as a team here. Um, you know, we don't really focus on that outside noise. Um, you know, I haven't heard much about this team. 
this summer. Um, you know, so the distraction's not there, and uh, I think everybody's just more excited to get the season started than anything. Is this group an under-the-radar team? Uh, yeah, I, you know what? I thought with last year, I, you know, we got the team in here. Um, you know, whether, you know, you guys believe it or not, we believe it in here, and I think that's all that matters. So um, whether we're under the radar or, or we're on the radar, um, doesn't matter to us. We know what we got in here. There's a lot of teams that sort of underachieve that don't get put back together as, as close to sort of the same roster as you guys have. So how do, how do you sort of look at that opportunity to prove what this group thinks it's capable of? Yeah, I think, you know, that's with, you know, Conroy. Um, he didn't want to make any changes. I think he believes that what we have in this room is is capable of winning the Stanley Cup. And, um, you know, the 23 guys that are on the roster, you know, got to believe it too. And, um, you know, we can achieve that goal I, I believe that and um yeah i think that's basically it do you talk to guys that are on expiring deals like hey you should stay in calgary like, like does that come up a ton between teammates in terms of yeah of course i mean I, I want everybody to stay here um why not you know it's a great city you know we got a great team here great fans you got it all here and um you know what the business side is the business side of things and that's just <clears throat> all professional sports but you know obviously you know here and there you you want to you know whisper in their area you know please stay obviously uh, we saw your game really level up as the season went on last year what, what has to happen for you to kind of start at that level that, that you were at the end of the year? I think it's just all confidence for me Com- you know feeling comfortable um, you know I thought the world was big for me as well in the summertime um, you know, just try, trying to carry that same mentality I had at the end of the year and into the Worlds and carry it into this into this season right off the start. Um, you know, I feel good physically. I feel good mentally. And, um, you know, for day one, I want to feel the same. How much better do you feel than you did sort of this day a year ago? <laughs> uh, like a new guy, honestly. I, I feel great. Um, and that's all I can really ask for. You played with you played lots with Nikita last year and lots with Raz. How comfortable do you feel with both guys? Great, you know, two great players. I thought, you know, Big Z came off a great year. You know, Raz is, you know, Raz he's hell of a player, um, consistent. Um, you know, one of our best team men, and, and Z's just, you know, confident. I think he wants to take that that next step, and uh, I feel comfortable with both those guys. You know, I feel comfortable with all our D men. I play, I jumped around quite a bit last year, and um, you know, our top six can go against you know any top six in the league. Is Lorov still talking about the hat trick? <laughs> you know, it's funny he hasn't, uh, and I'm not, I'm not trying to bring it up either because I know he won't stop talking about it. Early on, just on the ice, pure systems, have you noticed a huge difference in how you're going to play sort of X's and O's wise now compared to before? Uh, I think the only thing right now that we've noticed is just the D zone. Uh, we're changing the D zone up a bit. Um, you know, it's not man on man, it's a bit more of a zone coverage, but, um, you know, that it's not going to take too long to understand. Uh, Huss has done a great job uh, already with video and just having a few meetings, uh, getting that under control. And um, that's basically it so far. Other than that, it's pace, it's intensity, compete, you know, all the same stuff that you're going to hear a lot this year. Do you guys sense that defensemen will be given the green light a little more to jump up in the play now? Or like, like has that been brought up at all? Yeah, absolutely. We want the fourth guy to get up there. Uh, when the time's right, of course, uh, you know, don't cheat. But when, the, when you see that uh, ice to be available, you get up there and, um, you know, create some offense. Mackenzie Weger, one of the many voices you'll hear following day one of training camp on a sessions underway at the Scotiabank Saddle Dome on this Thursday. When we come back, we'll join our uh, MLB insider, Adnan Verk. Chat some movies, chat some baseball with Adnan. Still to come on the program, hear from head coach Ryan Huska after his first 
time running on a sessions as this team's head coach. We'll hear from Elias Lindholm, Jacob Markstrom, Michael Backlund, all of that and more. It's a special day one of training camp edition of Sportsnet today, and it rolls on next here on Sportsnet 960 The Fan. Hour one rolling on from the Doug Lacey's Basement Systems downtown studios here in Calgary, Alberta on the day on day number one of on-ice sessions for the Calgary Flames. First preseason game goes Sunday night at the Saddle Dome. You can catch the call right here on Sportsnet 960. The fan, Derek Wills and Megan Mickelson on the call. Pat Steinberg's got your pregame show, postgame show, and intermissions covered for a first look at the Calgary Flames this preseason. Hockey starting up, but baseball continues just a couple weeks out from postseason action getting underway. We remain generally confused around here if the Toronto Blue Jays are a good team or a bad team. But plenty of other things to check out in the baseball race right now as well. Very happy on this Thursday to go down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar guest hotline. Welcome in our pal from MLB Network, Cinephile Podcast. You know him, you love him. It's Mr. Adnan Verk. Verk, how are you, pal? Logo, great to catch up as always, my friend. It is a beautiful day here in New Jersey. God, it's uh, 73 and sunny. What's that, plus 21? I mean, this is yeah. like ideal weather. I was like, I can't believe I'm inside. I just want to go sit outside. See if I can do MLB tonight from outside. I, I don't know. I guess see what I can do. How's the weather in Calgary? <laughs> you know what? Not bad. We're, uh, we're definitely into the fall temperatures. We're getting a little bit lower and colder at nights. We haven't had a frost warning yet, but I have a feeling it's right around the corner. The frost warning was the only good thing with the frost warning. I used to have terrible allergies when I was a kid. It's not so bad now. It's normally the last weeks of August, first weeks of September. My dad would always say, once we get the first frost, we're good. So I would always, I would root on that frost. Just so I'd start having <laughs> these itchy eyes, runny nose. But so, you know, you know what it's like when you get, I don't know if yep. you have them, but you know, people have bad allergies. God, just ruined your entire life. So that is the one upside of the first frost. It does kill that ragweed out there. Yeah, the one thing that we get out here, and I don't know if it's the same in the Eastern time zone. I've never spent enough time out there to know Adnan, but we're already getting back to the very early sundowns. It's like 7.30, 8 o'clock out here, and it's already getting dark, and it's getting to that point where you know in a few months by like 4.30, 5 o'clock, it's going to be dark out for your wintry drive home. Yeah, that's always a challenge. Right? I looked the other day, and I said, daylight like savings like November 5th. I'm like, oh, man. When it's when, as you said, when it's four forty-two oh. and it's already dark, that's that's a tough feeling. Drives me absolutely nuts. Like it's the least I, I can deal with the cold. I, I even like the snow. I'm a, I like the seasons, all that. But I, I could do without the, you know, the eight o'clock sunrise and the four o'clock sun uh, sundown. It's just it's the worst part of winter for me. But we're not there yet. We got a couple of weeks to get there before we uh, can, can complain for real. But. Uh, honestly, we're going to start the conversation off today. I, I don't know how these are going to go over the next couple of weeks because it feels like on opposite weeks, we can talk about a different version of the Toronto Blue Jays. Last week, we were talking to you. It was doom and gloom. The series with the Rangers didn't go their way. They were swept away. No one had faith left in this team. Now they've popped off five in a row against AL East opponents and feels like they control their own fate. Do you have a good feel on what this Jays team really is, Adnan? <laughs> I wish I could, Logan. If I could, I'd, I'd make a ton of money, man. They are uh, about as schizophrenic as it gets. It's such a such an odd team because, as you said, you lose that four-game series against the Rangers. And I said, that's it. They had a one-and-a-half game lead against Texas at home. And Dan O'Dowd, the former Rockies GM, he and I were working together, 
Because honestly, if the Jays take three or four against Texas, that could be it. This could be a ball game. They could bury these guys. And instead, the Jays get buried alive, 35-9, to four-game sweep. Texas Chainsaw Massacre cover the Toronto Sun, which would make Corey Seager leatherhead. I mean, it was unbelievable how bad they looked. And you figure this is it. It's over. The Jays have averaged 37 fans per game, 37,000 fans per game. It was 27,000 of that series. And I said, wow, that's crazy. Like, I would have thought they're going to get sold-out crowds. This is a massive series. Hockey hasn't started yet. And that was worrisome to me. It's almost as if Toronto sports fans go, ah, we know. We can smell an imposter when we see one. These guys aren't the real deal. We're not going to get behind them. Those were jarring numbers. And again, I get it. Kids are back in school, whatever. But still, you should get some big numbers that series. Anyways, as you said, you think that the world has ended. And yet, they had swept the Red Sox previously in Fenway. They do it at home. And they take the first two games convincingly against the Yankees. They've now won five straight. They're looking to match a season high with a six straight win. And with the Astros, Mariners, and Rangers all idle tonight, they can pick up a half game in the wildcard race if they win tonight. And they're actually really well positioned right now to make the postseason because of this. They can gain ground on one of the three AL West teams every single night because the Mariners face Texas and Houston to finish the regular season. Mm-hmm. Seattle faces Texas seven times and Houston three times. So unless all those teams were to go five and five, which isn't going to happen, then the Jays will be fine. Cause it's not like Seattle's going to go nine and one. If they do in Texas, all of a sudden gets swept up. Great. Then Texas falls apart. Jays take advantage. Like the only way it would hurt the Jays is if all those other teams are 500 and that's just not going to happen. Like one team will be better than the other. One team will win the series. And, Seattle specifically, that 10 games, seven against Texas, three against Houston. If they go seven and three, then Seattle makes the playoffs. If they go three and seven, they're going to miss the playoffs. And as long as the Jays play a little bit above 500, they're going to be okay. Um, So it's interesting how it works out. And I think, again, we haven't, we've talked a lot about it, but it just keeps getting more and more pub. Just how good this starting pitching has been this season. The Jays starters lead the majors, 3.75 ERA this season. And their starters have allowed just three earned runs and 29 and two-thirds innings during this winning streak. That's a .91 ERA. Now, I'm concerned because you got Garrett Cole tonight. He's got three more starts to put the finishing touches on his first-ever sighing award. He leads the American League in innings, ERA, opponents' OPS. He's third in strikeouts, and he hasn't allowed a run in two starts against the Blue Jays this season. That's over 11 and two-thirds. So, tough test tonight for the Jays, but, man, their starters have been great, and Barrios gets the ball tonight. He's been very good. He actually kicked off this win streak, seven scores against the Red Sox last Friday. So it's amazing what a difference a week makes. How does that make you feel about a team heading into the postseason, Adnan, knowing that, look, at the end of the day, they were able to get it done. And I said this to one of our guests last week, it it doesn't feel like a team that's, you know, 14, 15 games above 500. But I guess the expectations were just so high coming into the season that maybe a wild card appearance just feels like a bit of a disappointment. I'm curious how you sort of view a team that's had such highs and lows heading into a postseason where really anything can happen? I think you have to try to spin it positively in this sense. Logo and go, you know, I think they should have been good enough to win the division. But I also didn't expect the Baltimore Orioles to win 100 games. And they're going to win their first division title since 2014. And I figured the Rays would be really good, 90-plus wins. I the Yankees would be a lot better. So you say things work out. Yankees should have been better. They fell off. Rays and New be good, and Baltimore exceeded expectations. So you knew it was going to be a challenge for Toronto to win the division, but they should have been in position to. Instead, they're not going to, they're not even close, 10 games back. So I think you're right. If you did look overall, you go, that's a bit of a disappointment. I thought the Jays would win 95 games, and they're not going to do that. But get in the dance, make something happen. If you're that third wild card, you're going to face the Twins. 
The Twins are hopeless come playoff. I think they've lost 18 straight playoff games. It gets crazy how bad they are come playoff time. So if the Jays get the third wild card, I don't think they should lay down, by the way. Like, win as much as you can. If you face Tampa, great. But if you are the third wild card, you face Minnesota, you win that series, and then who knows what could happen. You're going to have to beat one of Houston, Baltimore, Tampa to make the World Series. I think it's pretty clear. Those are the three best teams. So I think right now, even if the Jays make the playoffs, you can have a tinge of, like, they're a little bit underwhelming. But if they win a round, then that's progress. And that's how you have to look at it. A year ago, you make the playoffs, you lose against Seattle. Debacle, if you want to call it that, in two games. This year, if you make the playoffs and win a round, that is progress. But if you don't win a round, then I think you say, this was a frustrating and disappointing season. There's nothing worse than being stagnant. And that's how it looked for this Blue Jays team overall. Uh, moving from the Jays to their AL East opponent, uh, it's been a great season for the Tampa Bay Rays. They're going to look to uh, move in and make some da- make some noise in the postseason. But they made news uh, off the field this week, Adnan, and this new development uh, for a new stadium that could be coming in 2028 if you're the Rays. That's good news. They've been trying for a very long time to figure out something to get them out of Tropicana Field. I'm curious, what have you heard from people around the game about the possibility of this? Because, yes, there's a $1.3 billion stadium involved in this, but the actual overall redevelopment that they're trying to put through here is something like $6.5 billion, and it's a very big project that the Rays are trying to be a small part of. Yeah, I mean, the, the two stadiums we've worried about forever are Oakland and Tampa. And Oakland, we still don't know the resolution. The lease is up at the end of next year for a new park in Vegas. That probably wouldn't happen until opening day 2027. So the A's might be nomads for a couple of years. They could try to renew their lease for a couple of years. God, what a lame duck situation. That will be three years in Oakland. Everyone knows they're leaving. Or they can move to Vegas, play in the AAA ballpark for a couple of years. Who knows? And then we have Tampa, and everyone knows this is not going to work in its current iteration being in that ballpark. And they gave this suggestion of, what about half the games in Montreal, half the games in Tampa, home games, which is a, a harebrained idea, but I was like, hey, whatever. As long as we can get the baseball back in Montreal, I'm in. But that's not going to happen. And I have a cousin who lives in Tampa. And everyone there in Tampa says, it's just honestly, what do they say about real estate? Location, location, location. Yep. It's a bad spot. Once you have to go over that bridge, there's too much traffic. People are not going to go. That's all right. I said, well, is this going to be ever a team that gets 35,000 a day? I said, well, look at it as a sports town. Lightning, fantastic. I'm like, yeah, they draw great. They, they won a Stanley Cup. They've been very successful for years. Buccaneers, obviously, Tom Brady's Super Bowl. So it's not like they don't support sports. And the Rays are always a 90-95 win team in the playoffs. So it feels fairly straightforward. Like, well, if you get them a stadium, which apparently is in the right spot, I would think, I don't know if they're going to get 35,000, but they'll get 25,000 a night, which is better than 15,000 currently. But I looked at that story logo like you, and it looks like they're still far ways away. they got to get city council approval, and that's a huge deal. Once you get the politicians involved, then it's different. But it's one thing to say, hey, we have this proposal. We need $1.5 billion. Okay, who's paying? If it's personally, privately financed, great. It's never going to be that. They always want the city to pay. They always want the taxpayers to pay. So we're a long ways away from a resolution. But I hope at some point we get this figured out because I think we all know baseball the shop just doesn't feel like the best baseball we can get. It feels frustrating from a from a sense because, like the Oakland thing, I mean, I can understand a, a fan frustration in Oakland, Adnan, because let's be honest, the team's kind of been a feeder system for other teams in baseball for a number of years now, where they've really grown prospects up to a certain level and then seen them, you know, traded or sometimes walk as free agents to other destinations. Tampa Bay's been a really good team for a long time now. 
They're in it year after year. They draft and develop as well as anybody. And it kind of feels like this has been the missing blueprint to having a really successful team in Tampa Bay. The arena holds so much back for this team. And the hardest part to do, as we both know, is winning on the field. They've kind of had that cover. I know it hasn't led to a bunch of World Series, but they've been as consistent as everybody. If you could just get the arena figured out, it feels like a slam dunk for baseball. I think so, too. And by the way, if it doesn't work out, well, then you have your answer, right? Like if, if you get this beautiful ballpark and they still can't get, and I believe you need twenty five to 30000 a night, especially with a team that's successful and winning. I mean, even Pittsburgh, which is a bad team, has a gorgeous ballpark. They're going to get 17000 no matter what, because PNC is such a jewel of a baseball park. So I think you got to get the park there. At least give them a fair chance. Now, look, at, we got the park. We have a great team. We have the resources. It's beautiful weather. It's Florida. Let's get this done. And if for some reason at that point you can't be successful, then you realize maybe relocation is the answer or whatever possibly could happen. Uh, interesting today, the Tigers as well, naming Jeff Greenberg as their next GM. Uh, he's been uh, in all over sports, been in the Cubs front office, and interestingly enough, been an associate GM with the Blackhawks in hockey uh, for the last 16 months, and he's going to be the 20th GM in Tigers history. What do you think about the work that Jeff Greenberg has in front of them to get the Tigers turned around, Adnan? Well, the good news is they've got a couple pieces. You've always got to have some sort of a nucleus that you're going to build around, and they got Spencer Torkelson, who's really stepped it up this season. You know, number one pick a year ago, really slumped miserably. I had him winning a rookie of the year, and he wasn't even close. He really struggled much of the year. And even this year, he's kind of up and down, but hits a lot of home runs, and he's been better. I think the second half of the year really looks a lot more confident. They've also got Riley Green, who looks like a legit player, and I think he's a guy that you can build around and be a potentially really good player. Kerry Carpenter as well. So, to me, there's three hitters right there. The concern for the Tigers is they're pitching. Now, I love Casey Mize. I interviewed him once, and I said, God, I love the fact your best pitch is the splitter. And he said, yeah. I said, the splitter is just a pitch I love, loving baseball in the 80s, that diving action. And I said, have you ever been told not to pitch a splitter? He said, yeah. Actually, a lot of pitching coaches said it's too much pressure on your arm and throw a uh, cutter instead. But, you know, Mize, look at one of these guys, high traffic, can't miss, but he's been hurt. Tarek Skubal, another guy, look like a can't miss guy, good pitcher, he's been hurt. So the Tigers really have been, have been you know, punished by the fact they're their young core has not pitched. Scribble specifically has basically pitched one full season over the last two years due to injury. He's won three straight starts now. Since the start of last year, he's got a 3 4 2 ERA, 120 ERA plus. So, you know, he's capable of doing something. But the Tigers really, they've got to get better pitching. But if you look at the positives of it, entering play June 15th, they were 27 and 39, third West worst record in the American League. Since then, they're above 500. 44 and 42. They're just two and a half games back of the Twins for the best record in the AL Central. This also happened in 2021. They started the year 9 and 24, then went 68 and 61 the rest of the year. So they're a team that really struggles out of the gate, but then picks things up. Um, you know, despite playing over four, 500 for over three months, their next loss will clinch a losing season the seventh consecutive year. That's the second longest streak in club history that has to change. Like next year, no matter what, you got to say to yourself, we got to go 82 and 80. Let's just get more wins than losses. And by the way, and now in today's playoff format, we're seeing this in the National League. If you get 85, 86 wins, that's enough to get the last wild card spot. You can be a playoff team. So I wish Jeff well. You know, he and Scott Harris worked together in the Cubs front office. As you mentioned, 16 months with the Blackhawks. So um, he's got his work cut out for him. But I do think he's got some pieces there, specifically Torkelson, Kerry Carpenter, 
Jake Rogers also, he's got 20 home runs. That's tied for fifth among all catchers. So that's not bad. Hopefully better days there for the Tigers. Yeah, and Cam Maven, by the way, does a really good job for us. A former player, 16 years. He also did a lot of Tigers games this year, radio and pre and post. And he told me, you know, people joke about, oh my God, Detroit, it's like the apocalypse in it. <laughs> because if you go to Game of America now, they've really refurbished downtown Detroit. It's got a little more buzz to it. So I hope there's better days ahead. I, I, I like that city because they got a real pops about them. I do like that park. And, I think of 06 and Miguel Cabrera and how good the Tigers were and Verlander. So hopefully, uh, hopefully Jeff can turn it around. It's a regular Thursday chat with our pal Adnan Verk, MLB Network, NHL Network, Cinephile Podcast, and uh, an unabashed Eagles fan. Two for two for your Eagles, Verk, and now uh, Monday Nighter in Tampa Bay. How do you feel about these Monday Night doubleheaders? I'm going to be honest, I kind of hate having one kickoff an hour. After the other, I'd rather just go early kickoff and then a later kickoff. I don't like the channel flipping or a doubleheader on Monday night. No, you nailed it, man. I, I wasn't crazy about it myself. I I put on the Panthers game first because that was the early game. So, all right, 7.15, start watching this. And then it wasn't much of a game. So, I go, okay, well, I'll go flip over the Steelers-Browns. <laughs> and then I get distracted by some other things. But you're right. I, what happened to... 7 o'clock and 10.15. Yeah. Right, let's just go back-to-back and watch a ton of football, especially where you are in your you know, non-Eastern time zone. You can get your night started at 5 o'clock and still be able to watch both games and still be in bed by 10.30. So I'm with you, man. I'm not crazy, but I don't really understand it, especially because it's the same audience. Like, if you're ESPN, you're trying to build as much of an audience as possible. The only thought I can think of is you know, numbers do decrease, I guess, West Coast time. Someone years ago said to me, why is there so much East Coast bias? And then I asked the producer to hear and he said, because 60% of the audience lives east of Chicago. So you're going to get more ratings and more people quite simply when the games are earlier. So they must have some sort of algorithm. A 7 o'clock game goes till 10.30, 8 o'clock game done by 11.15. That's still preferable than a 10.15 game being done at 1.30. It's got to be just the TV numbers and the money. Because otherwise, you're right. As a fan, I'd rather go back-to-back than having to flip back and forth. I guess it'll be easy for you on Monday, and most people, if they've got a team in the in the doubleheader, then you just stick with that one. Good start to the year for your Eagles, and feel like they can get better. Interesting, this Tampa Bay team's been kind of fiery under Baker Mayfield, and uh, I don't think it's a I, – look, I think I still think the Eagles are going to win. They're favored by, I think, four and a half on the road, but I don't know if it'll be as easy as maybe some think it will be going into Tampa without Tom Brady. No, I agree, and having watched both these games closely, as you noted as an Eagles fan, you know, Kirk Kerbstreit said it well last week. He goes, the Eagles have played like B-minus. Like, they have not yeah. played their best football. Week one, the offense, a couple of great turnovers there by the defense. They score points. And they kind of went to sleep for a while. And then had a couple of late game plays were kind of quirky from, from Sirianni. Did not punt on fourth and two. Hurts got stopped. It was midfield possession. I'm like, oh, my God, they're going to gag this game against the Patriots. But the defense bails them out. Then last week, you know, the offense was the one that was able to step up a little bit because – defensively they had some miscues late and were able to score some points. Again, the score looked a little closer than I would have preferred overall. Like uh, Michael Lombardi, my old friend, does a great job in the GM shuffle. Buys new book, by the way. It's very good. Football done right. Mm-hmm. He ranks the top 100 players in football history. The great Reggie White, one of my favorite players, comes in at number four. I was so happy. I called Mike. I said, wow. I said, <laughs> you know, I, 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 said, I knew Tom Brady would be number one and Lawrence Taylor number two, but he's got Jim Brown at three, Reggie White at four, which is fantastic. But Anyways, I get sidetracked. The point is, Mike used to always talk with the middle eight. Middle eight is the final four minutes of the first half and the first four minutes of the second half. And he said, if you decline kickoff at the start of the game, the way most teams would, like, hey, we'll play defense first, yep. shut you guys down, and then score. 
So if you can have a good drive to end the first half and you get the ball to start the second half, that can be a 14-point swing because that, that is massive when I watch games, how important the middle eight is. And the Eagles were great at the middle eight in their last game against the Vikings. That's really why they won the game. They took over then. And then, like I said, late scores from Minnesota, whatever. But, yeah, they, they haven't played their best football yet, so that leads one to believe that rather than due for a stinker, they're due to play a little bit better and they'll have a little bit of extra rest coming up the Thursday game. But I'm with you on the Bucs. You know, they're not going to be a 6-11 and 11 team. They're, they're going to be at least a 500 team, and, and Baker's got a little fight and moxie to him. And I don't think he's a great quarterback, but I think he's a dangerous quarterback and he's got something to prove. And there's no doubt he has talent. So you're right. Bucks, I think, especially at home, it'll be a good game. Uh, quickly, before I ask you about Cinephile and we get we get out of here on a, a Thursday, that's going to be a task to go through the 100 best players in NFL history and come up with that definitive list. Like, I know, I think arbitrarily as as sports fans, we're used to, to going through and ranking things in our head. And we're used to power rankings and, and lists and all that. But I think going through all the variables of that, Adnan, that's actually a massive undertaking, especially different positions, different eras to come up with that and to do it really, you know, in a serious tone of a book. It's a pretty big undertaking for your pal Lombardi. Oh, it's unbelievable. Like he said, the amount of work you to do and like, you know, it's exhaustive. Like if you were a top one of the hockey players, and you and I are avid hockey fans. There's still going to be guys I've never heard of, right? Like I, yeah. I got my Howie Morenzas and stuff, but there's going to be some dudes like, who are these people? And you're like, dude, I did this great research. He played for 1917 Toronto St. Pat. He was so good. So there's like at least 20 players in there that I've never heard of. Like Mike's including guys from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, offensive linemen. Like it's amazing. Um, and then there's, of course, like guys that would actually know. Like what I always think is interesting is the quarterbacks because everyone said, so, you know, off the top of my head, that's really what I focused on. Yeah. And Brady had it one. The second best quarterback of all time. Take a guess who it was. I, I was a little surprised where he put him. Uh, Second best quarterback of all time. Of all time, Steve Young. You can you can guess top five. Top five in my head. I think I knew off the top of my head. Steve the way that Mike did. But I was surprised we had number two. Go ahead, Steve Young. Steve Young, not in the top five. Not in the top one hundred players of all time. Uh, Marino. Marino, he had. He was like seventh quarterback of all time. He was like in the eighties. Um, I imagine Peyton's got to be a top five. Yeah, I was going to say, Peyton Manning, I think he had it fourth overall. Third overall was Joe Montana. Yeah. And the second best quarterback of all time, Johnny Unitas. Unbelievable. Really? He, had, he had Johnny Unitas, he had Johnny Unitas as the eighth best player of all time, second best quarterback. He had Montana at 12. Joe Montana not in the top 10 players in the history of the National Football League, and he had Peyton Manning at 13th. Roger Staubach, shockingly, was like in the top 20. I was like, wow. So he really kind of surprised me with some of these picks. And uh, it was well-researched, and certainly he could be challenged. But I just think guys like you and me, our age, right? You say the best quarterbacks of all time. You go, I don't know, uh, Brady, Montana, Peyton. Yeah. That's pretty much it. But he's, he went a little Johnny U, Roger Staubach. It was interesting. And Brett Favre, he did have, but he wasn't like till like maybe number 60. Uh, Aaron Rodgers was like 45. So there's nothing sports fans love more than debating sports and good <laughs> lists. So if you want to get yeah. lists you can argue about, football done right. Uh, last but not least, pal, a new uh, addition to Cinephile dropped this week. What do you got for the people? Talked a ton about JFK because the 60th anniversary of JFK's assassination is coming up. And as you know, really smart critics of Alzheimer's said, in very many ways, it's kind of like JFK. And Christopher Nolan himself, when he gave the script to Killing Murphy, said these are the kind of movies they used to make in the 90s they don't make anymore. It's like an Oliver Stone movie. And so I said, okay, I haven't seen JFK in 30 years. I loved Oppenheimer. Let me watch it again. And it was fantastic. 
hadn't seen JFK. Came out in 91. I probably saw it again a couple of years after that, but it's been 30 years. Incredible cast. Joe Pesci, just look him up in the commercial break. If you don't remember, Joe Pesci has a painted on eyebrows and is wearing a wig the whole movie. Unbelievable. <laughs> John Candy, the late great Canadian. John yep. Candy shows up for two scenes. You got Walter Matthau, Jack Lemon, Ed Asner, Kevin Bacon, and of course, Kevin Costner leading the way. Tommy Lee Jones, Oscar nominated for Best Supporting Actor. It's a hell of a movie, man. And it um, doesn't matter if you think Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. If you think it's a conspiracy, the CIA, the mafia, whatever. Just as a movie, it's, it's supreme entertainment. Three hours and three minutes, but I really enjoyed it. So deep dive on JFK. Also, Naked Lunch. Speaking of Canadians, David Cronenberg's film from 1991. I've never seen it. I always remember the, the posters, you know. It's just a guy's face as a typewriter wearing a fedora. And I said, this movie's going to be one of the weirdest movies ever. I don't know if I can watch it. So I finally watched it this weekend. Like a true Canadian oddity. It was memorable. It was disgusting. It was unforgettable. But I really recommend watching Naked Lunch. And lastly, Toronto Film Festival just concluded. Brian Helgeland, who won an Oscar for writing L.A. Confidential, I interviewed him on the podcast. He has a new movie called Finest Kind, in which he wrote and directed. So it was a fun pod. Bert, you're the best, pal. Enjoy the weekend. Good luck to your Eagles. We'll chat with you again next week, pal. I appreciate it, Logo. Talk soon, my friend. Take care. Ed Nenvert joining us down the Atlas Pizza and Sports Bar. Guest hotline, our Thursday regular here on the program. Uh, MLB Network, NHL Network, Cinephile Podcast. Uh, you know him, you love him. Uh, we love having Adnan on every Thursday here on Sportsnet today. When we come back around the corner, hour two kicking off with more audio from Flames Training Camp. Day one in the books for Ryan Huska. His first opportunity to run a training camp as an NHL head coach. We'll hear from him next. Sportsnet Today rolls on here on Sportsnet 960, The Fan.